You're listening to Deus et Machina, a podcast that brings people together for short conversations about religion and technology. Our first season has to do with artificial intelligence. I am your host, Matthew Vaughn. My co-host for each episode will be Norm Jackness, a professor of technology management at Columbia University. This is the third and final episode in which Norm and I talked to Jacob Goodson, a philosopher from Southwestern College. In the previous episodes, we've talked about how to frame questions we're hoping to address, as well as what we mean by certain words we tend to use in this conversation. In this episode, Norm, Jacob, and I get into some of the ethical implications of this discussion, and we conclude by talking about a fascinating piece of technology, an AI bot that is programmed to speak as a rabbi. I'd be curious if either of you have a particular trajectory that you feel would be more relevant than revisiting some of the stuff we did a couple of days ago from a fresh angle. I'm going to, I'm sure I'm going to listen before I talk. Well, I'll defer to Jacob first since I get us another shot at this. Well, the question of ethics, I think it, for me, my mind goes back to the distinctions I was trying to make earlier, which is who's to blame for our constant distraction, our seeming, seemingly less attentiveness that we have as humanity right now than we did, I guess, pre-computer, pre-social media, people mark different times. And again, I think that I used to blame those technologies for that, but I think it's becoming more clear that it's a human problem and that perhaps the technologies themselves can actually be part of the solution. And when we're talking about the ethics of technology, I think it has to come back to the ethics of the creators of technology. And what does it mean for us to become proper users of the objects and the technologies and the tools that we make? Well, it's ethics of, and to put words in your mouth, Jacob, and uh, my apologies, I cut you off. Finish your thought. No, go ahead. You sure? Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry about that. I, not only is it the ethics of the creator, <laughs> it's the ethics of the user of the created. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there are, those are not necessarily always the same, but I think there's also perhaps going back to something that Tracy and Calvin mentioned on Monday, something that I frankly had not really at all thought about incorporating in this. And Norm, don't, I'm not going to forget my question to you. I, I do want to come back to that. But it's the issue of who it is that's making these decisions and what their priorities might be and the types of people we exclude, the types of communities, the types of life that we exclude from consideration when talking about technologies very generally. And Tracy mentioned issues of social justice quite a lot when talking about, I mean, Calvin did too, but Tracy was the one who was articulately framing it, about who it is that gets to make decisions about X, Y, and Z issue and who it is that is forced by definition to be quiet and not have a voice, et cetera. And I think there's a certain sense of that that I'm, I have inferred through this conversation about artificial intelligence, that we are part of a very pr- privileged few people on earth right now that have the luxury of reflecting on machines that can reflect. And I think there's something to that. Norm, I'd be curious where your thoughts are on 
either Jacob's initial thought, my reaction, and then maybe as a corollary third question to you, where the ethical dilemmas lie in your understanding. The couple of things, I'm sure I want to jump all over the place, but I just one thought when Jacob was talking that is, you know, the classic question, can you blame the God of the faithful for the misbehavior of the faithful? Can you blame the creators of this technology for the way that the users of this, of the technologies are misusing them, even to basically even using them to kill people, other people. And, and I don't know what the answer is to that. That's hopefully something religion scholars are trying to figure out. <laughs> is there something inherent in the belief? that allows this, or is this just people not paying attention to what their God has told them? Anyway, I, I want to add into, though, because the social justice thing came up and I didn't really respond to it. Again, I view these AI like almost any other tool in some respects. It can be used in both ways. In fact, a lot of what drove the original motivation for some of the things that led to AI was an attempt by radicals to, if you will, deinstitutionalize the power of the elites. And even now, you can read a lot of articles in the professional journals about what's called the democratization of AI, the ability to give people who are not data scientists or don't pay data scientists, giving them the ability to get the insights that might come from machine learning. Is that going to be as widespread as the kind of thing that companies that have, you know, $100 billion in the bank? Probably not, but the potential is there. And then it's really a question of what our public policies and social policies are in terms of the distribution of this kind of power along with any other kind of power. I guess maybe my thoughts on on that issue of power. Aren't we, hasn't the cat already been out, let out of the bag? Are these technologies controllable? Are they regulatable? I mean, I think the issue of blockchain technology would be a good example of just a concrete Maybe I wouldn't call it an artificial intelligence, but perhaps depending on one's definition, one might call blockchain chain technologies, artificial intelligence. Like, what are your, haven't we already, maybe that's a bad example, so we can more about these than I do, but can we even rein this back in? Isn't this toothpaste already out of the jar? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, there, there are things you can do to rein it in. And like any other law, not everybody's going to follow it and you need to deal with that issue. But yeah, there's, there are ways of doing this. For example, look at the, in the behavioral sciences, the kind of things that universities have done to control the way that subjects and experiments are treated so that some even very famous experiments are no longer allowed. Um, now, are some people still doing them somewhere in the world? Probably, but it's been much diminished. And I think uh, if somebody wants to regulate AI, they can. Europe, for example, and now the United States, sort of in conjunction with Europe, has been pushing pretty hard about the use of personal data which has been an important part of the development of artificial intelligence. Is it going to be 100% successful? No, but it's pushing back. People, the industry is reacting to it now and trying to figure out, okay, how do I get around this? Thank you. When I asked the question about AI and ethics, Jacob, it was interesting. You immediately, within the first sentence of your answer, used the word blame, which to me is a very loaded word that implies action, repercussion, so an understanding by an external entity, that action causing that repercussion is indeed bad and then approaches corollary notions of punishment, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so blame was where you went immediately. I don't think that's necessarily how you define ethics. So let me ask you a more broad question. Jacob, what are some of the ethical issues that you understand to be at stake in the conversation between artificial intelligence and religious inquiry, perhaps, or maybe not religious inquiry, maybe religious faith or 
religiosity more generally. Yeah, I suppose the, I mean, the first thing that I think about is, again, the way that technology gets used and who's able to access it and, and who is it ultimately for. And so from my perspective, for instance, you know, technology allowed for the pandemic to be more bearable precisely because it allowed us to use the technology to stay connected with one another. And I'm, I find myself frustrated by religious leaders who are lamenting the fact of meeting online during that time or continuing because what I'm seeing amongst undergraduate students is that different forms of technology was in some way, to use a religious word, was in some way their only means for salvation, right? That they felt so lonely and isolated, whether they were stuck at home with their parents or stuck in a dorm room on college campus, that the only way that they could interact, whether it was socially or religiously, was through things like Zoom, as we're using right now, or text messaging or FaceTiming. And so I, when I say that I've been thinking about this for a couple of years, it's the pandemic that's really, I think, started to change my mind. And I ha I've heard both colleagues, academics and religious leaders lament the fact that we become too dependent or so dependent on these kind of platforms, or even on a lot of academics complain about how much video games undergraduate students play. I'm trying to sing a different song about those. I think that they provide a kind of new means to stay connected in a more globalized world rather than serving as some kind of presser or downer for students and for those who feel isolated. So the initial question for me is using technologies properly and using them for the sake of emotional and mental health, making sure that we have access and making sure more people have access to those kind of platforms. Jack, can I ask you a question? I mean, I'm wondering whether or not that partly this reflects inequality amongst the clergy, because there are certainly during the last couple of years, certainly you have seen some religious services that use Zoom expanding their congregation by 10 or a hundredfold. Yeah. And to, to that extent, and maybe they were drawing from other congregants from other services that they might've used to have, might've gone to in the past. So this becomes a sort of an inequality kind of thing. I'm almost in parallel to the way that movies replaced all the regional theaters or in every little town in America, <laughs> because you can get the very best actors in the world on the screen. And I just wonder whether or not part of what you're hearing is just from the folks who just didn't succeed in this, if you will, new virtual battle amongst different religious institutions. Oh yeah. No, I've certainly heard that position as well. But, uh... What strikes me, whether it's on Twitter or in personal conversation, is as soon as you bring up that kind of positive aspect of moving online during the pandemic, you'll have the counter argument that, well, I don't count parishioners who worship online, so our numbers have gone down and they're <laughs> never going to come back in person, right? That's the argument. They're never coming back in person. Young people are never coming back to church in person, never going to synagogue again in person. And so there's just seems to be this really intense dichotomy right now between mm -hmm. those of us like you and I who are trying to see the positives and can actually have statistics on our side that maybe more people are actually viewing religious services now, or maybe they're able to find something that, that suits them more. As soon as you point that out, you get the extreme position pointed out that, oh no, well, numbers in person are down or I've lost yeah. prisoners. And so when we're talking about issues of ethics and social justice, I, I feel like 
this is not a time for a middle ground position. I feel like we have to bolster up some of the data and the arguments and the narratives to show that technology as a means, right? Again, I'm not putting <laughs> blame or praiseworthiness on technology itself, but technology as a means for the humans to, to find and figure out new ways to be together. I think that's a positive, right? It doesn't, I just came from an in-person lunch meeting with a former student. We could have met on Zoom. He lives an hour away. We chose to meet in person. And then I came home and having this conversation now, right? This isn't replacing in person. This is an addition to, or to use Chalmers' okay. language, this also can enhance, right? So because of this conversation, I'm now going to have more higher quality in-person conversations when I see different colleagues and friends. Yep. And I mean, I can give a personal example. I mean, I, since the pandemic, my wife has had weekly uh, Zoom calls with her siblings previously because they're in California. Well, we have seen them maybe once a year, maybe once every two years. Absolutely. That's a great, great insight. Great example. Norman and I were sharing some articles back and forth over the past year or so, thinking about this conversation among others. And one of the things that I came across was this rather interesting young rabbi who's basically set up a text and a, a, not a text analytics, a, a chat bot. There's a word though that I'm not the more articulate word for that, but a chat bot that um, essentially com- allows the conversation, get, conversational AI is the conversational AI that set up conversational AI that plays the role of your rabbi. And if you need to get something off your chest or you want to talk about the question you might have about Torah, you can go to this site and you can talk to the virtual rabbi. I'd be very interested to know what your thoughts are on that. Not as a, well, generally what your thoughts are on such a, on such an arrangement, on such a thing. My point here, I want to be very clear, should this ever get out, is not to critique this rabbi for her work. I think it's taking some risks and doing some interesting things. My point is not necessarily to critique her work, but more to the point to ask questions about the reality, be it virtual or not, that she has broached. And that is that we can now go to a machine to perform some of the tasks that religions have done and perhaps to make us thereby better people. So I thought you were going further down the road than that. I still look forward to her putting together a piece of software that would have more than one AI. And so they could debate with each other like Talmudic scholars. I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> you know, your statement about, about interpreting, if you will, experience and making you feel better. Isn't that sort of what psychological counseling is supposed to do too? How general are we talking about here? I'm comfortable with saying lots of things are religions that we don't typically call a religion. My question, though, has specifically to do with an Abrahamic tradition replacing its traditionally established components with a machine as a component and as a trajectory within the religion itself. I don't know. to, To throw my cards on the table. I'll be honest with you, I don't like it. There's a certain part of me that says, no, that there's, that I can't, it has to be a person. I don't know that, I I don't know why I want to say that. Maybe I want to say it for, maybe I'm the Luddite that Jacob's been bemoaning this entire time. (laughs) I think I might be a little bit. I've got a little bit of that Wendell Berry in me, but I just, there's something about the idea that a machine would take the place of my pastor 
my rabbi, my imam, that a machine would take the place, frankly, of my uh, psychological counselor that just fundamentally rubs me in the wrong way. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And in some ways, it's a stopological conclusion of the Protestant Reformation, right? where in the sense that confession moves in the Reformation from being between my priest and I to be being between God and I and the priest is in terms of the doctrine of the priest of all believers the priest is simply another one of us I mean I I, I wouldn't blame technology for this I would blame Protestantism for this move but um, I think this is it I mean I don't want to I would I would love it if David were not a, sta- a passive listener here to weigh in from a Catholic perspective here but I think my reservation might apply from a Catholic perspective too like that, that were, but I don't know, I don't want to put words in the mouths of someone whose tradition I don't represent. But my point only is, I mean, to the, yeah, I mean, to so the extent I'm asking that, the wrong question, maybe it is the issue, or maybe we're reacting to the wrong thing. Like I'm blaming well, technology for something that is philosophically not technology's fault. Is that where you're going with that? I mean, I guess that's what I would say. I mean, I would say that the move away from confessing to a person started in the 1400s. Right. Um, well, uh, and even earlier than that, since you're talking about a rabbi, I mean, the, you probably would have been one of those folks who would have been unhappy about the move away from temple-oriented Judaism to rabbinic Judaism. <laughs> I might well have been. It was not there for such a momentous moment in global history. But I think maybe, I mean, not to push, I don't want to belabor the point too much because I've had plenty of your time and you've been very gracious with it. But I'll simply say this. I actually, Jacob, don't agree with your assessment of my problem. And I think it's probably because I haven't clearly articulated it. I think where my problem lies is in the fact that there, it strikes me that there is something intrinsically mysterious about a religion that is removed, that mystery is somehow removed when a limited, albeit intelligent and learning machine is guiding its 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 user in in that experience to me it removes just removes the mystery and maybe that's the word i don't maybe that's not the word i want to use but that's the it's the thomas merton lover coming out of me that's that's he's sitting on my wall right here right next to Nietzsche. again i hear you i hear you i think to be consistent with what i've been saying this whole podcast is to the extent that mystery is connected with wonder w-o-n-d-e-r that it's always humans who decide to wonder or not. And for me, the the wonder that may be experienced or the mystery that may be experienced in that transaction with a machine playing the role of rabbi comes in the in either the fact or the lack of a fact of self-transformation. Right? And so the mystery there or the wonder is, again, it's more about your orientation or the user orientation than about what the machine can and cannot do. Because in some sense, even though it's removed, as Norm and I have been saying this whole time, machines are human creations. And so, yeah, you are removed from the creator, but in a similar way that when you go to confession with a priest, that you're one step removed from the creator, capital C, right? And so there is a sense in which it is a, to return to our very first conversation here. It is analogous to talk to a machine as one step removed from its creator, right? This rabbi that you're talking about is analogous to 
going to a priest who's, according to church authority, one step removed from God, the creator. And so I guess I would say that it's, right, it's more up to the orientation or the willingness to wonder or the willingness for transformation on the user and that you can make uh, analogous arguments to what's going on in your relationship with God when you're talking to a, a machine. Can I also respond to you, the use of the word mystery? Because that's one of the things that actually brought to mind my original question to you, Matthew, about AI and deification of AI. You may or may not be aware, but one of the big concerns in the artificial intelligence world and from outsiders who are using it is the fact that these deep learning models are mysterious. That is, how they come up with their accurate conclusions is not yet knowable. And there are a bunch of people trying to work on trying to figure out how, what the underlying formulas are, if you will, but they don't know it. So it, there is this sense of mystery, which for some people adds to the sense that these machines are expert in all knowing in the same way you did with religion, but it's not like the opposite of mystery. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a product of the Mid-Atlantic and New England Maritimes regions of the American Academy of Religion. Matthew Vaughn is executive producer. Norm Jackness and Ronald Bernier are producers. All recording, editing, and post-production work was done by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. We would like to extend a special thank you to our guests for their time and their expertise. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the voices offering them and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of others affiliated with this podcast or the American Academy of Religion. If you would like to learn more about the American Academy of Religion, please visit aarweb.org.